Welcome to Conscious TV with Tom and Ramon. Uh, go over a couple things real quick. Uh, visit the website, of course. Uh, want to thank everybody for their generous donations that have been coming in, and uh, we really appreciate it. Yeah, we definitely yay. Uh, Conscious-TV.com is the website. You can check out all our old archive stuff, and uh, there's some really good information on there. Uh, Ramon and I uh, try to keep uh, some of the more current news popping on our news section there. Uh, video links, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, stop by and check it out. Uh, so uh, Ramon, who have we got tonight? Uh, we got someone who has a very interesting story and one that I've looked into myself, but we'll let him talk about it. Um, Stephen Sidoni is an author, filmmaker, and social activist. Stefan spent his time searching for answers to many of his history's unsolved mysteries. He is without a question a real-life Indiana Jones and his quest to uncover the truth. Stefan, welcome to Hi, the show. Right. Thank so you very is it much, Mom. Stefan or Stephen? Because I hear it's some Steve. people call you Steve. Okay. Well, it's it's it's. I like the pronunciation Stephen, but it, it could be Stephen. I mean, it's either or, tomato, tomato, but for today, it'll be Stephen. All okay. right. <laughs> you got that cool. down. So, Stephen, the legend of J.C. Brown, that is a fascinating story. Uh, so, what got you into researching this? Well, in uh, 2007, uh, Tom, uh, I was just finishing a screenplay. I had written three comedies and I was looking for a challenge, so I went on the Internet and I decided to look to search for any interesting stories that I could write about. And it was then I stumbled upon The Legend of J.C. Brown. It was an excerpt from a book written by Emily A. Frank called California's Mystic Mountain, Mount Shasta. So I became fascinated by the story, and then I decided I was going to spend two weeks in the New York Public Library to investigate the legend. Now, for those of you who don't know about the legend, I'd like to take a couple minutes here just to set it up. Uh, it's a baffling story about a man by the name of J.C. Brown, who in 1934, at the age of 67, appears in Stockton, California. The old-timer spins a tale about a lost treasure he found 30, 30 years earlier in 1904 while employed with the Lord Cowdray Mining Company of England to the editor of the Stockton Record newspaper. So here he is, he, this older man shows up in uh, 1934 and, uh, to the editor's office in the Stockton Record. He claims that he has found you know, uh, a uh, lost civilization. So the, the newspaper man, the editor, then takes J.C. Brown to, to meet Harry Noyce Pratt, the curator of the Hagen Memorial Muse Museum. Mr. Pratt then gives J.C. Brown a list of people who might be interested in Brown's story, among those John C. Root, a retired printer. So now John C. Root, the retired printer, who lives at 1784 North San Joaquin Street in uh, Stockton, allows uh, J.C. Brown to use his home and gradually they organize an expedition which is formed with the purpose of participating in and exploring Brown's caves that he found in 1904 where he claimed to have discovered a tunnel in the Cascades Mountains uh, leading to relics of apparently a lost race. So, uh, now I read that uh, the, when he was uh, putting this... Uh 
this expedition together that uh, he'd gathered quite a few people together and uh, yep. that exactly well that yeah. none of these people had uh, had uh, to put out a dime did he actually uh, I, I well go go into the the uh, well, yeah, I, what, I'll, went through, I'll, I'll, what went through there in Stockton and and the mis mystery uh, around the uh, disappearance and all that stuff. Sure, I'll go through that right now. Well, uh, so for now, the meetings were held at the home of the group's organizer, John C. Root. And J.C. Brown's story originally expanded to such an extent that the meetings were now held twice a day for six weeks. The followers grew to about 80 in number. And which included many prominent people. You had the newspaper editor of the Stockton Record, Harry Norris Pratt, the uh, museum's curator, several scientists, a retired printer, and solid citizens. And many of the followers believed that the cavern held a secret to the lost race and continent of Lemuria. Uh, in J.C. Brown then, at the meetings, this is what he stated. So I'm going I'm to go through that, and then I'll exp explain about the money, about how much he took or, or did not take. J.C. Brown now tells the group that, it, well, in 1904, he was employed for the Lord Cowdery Mining Company of England. He was hired to prospect for precious metals in the gold-bearing region. And while there, he ran into a section of rock on the face of a cliff, which didn't seem to match the surrounding foundation. While examining the curious stone, he noticed it blocked an entrance to what appeared to be a cave. Brown, a geologist, thought the entire scene was unnatural and began to dig out the mouth of the cave, which is full of debris and vegetation. He began to see that it was not a small cave after all, and after much digging, he found himself in a tunnel which curved downward into the mountain. So here it is now. He finds this, this, this tunnel. So equipped with lanterns and miner's paraphernalia, he sets out to explore it. He claims that three miles from the mouth of the tunnel he strikes a cross-section containing gold-bearing ore, and further on he strikes another section where an ancient race apparently had mined copper, he said later. He then told the group that he believed that the other cross-sections outcropped onto some other parts under the mountain. He said the decline continued approximately from where he started 11 miles inside the mountain, and 2,300 feet from the surface is where he claimed he found what he called the village. And this is the part that's very interesting, guys. He said the streets were laid out in the village. So now he sees this village. He then discovers two rooms filled with copper and gold tablets, about three and four inches in concave, so that one laid inside of the other. The rooms that he found there were literally full of plates, all inscribed neatly, neatly and they were lined with tempered copper and hung with shields and wall pieces made of gold and he believed that they were using radium to create this because it, it looked like it was technology that wasn't even used in the 1900s. He, he said that some of the gold plates he found were engraved with certain drawings and hieroglyphics that probably looked more Egyptian uh, to him at that time. He also found uh, tempered copper spears and other objects made of gold. So it's a, a major find that he found, you know, underneath the mountain. He then uh, opens other rooms which go into other chambers, and, and one of the rooms uh, appeared to have been a place of worship. In that room, there were 13 statues made of copper and gold and a, a large sun design which protruded like uh, golden streamers. 
He noticed that the way the objects were thrown around, he had the feeling that the occupants of the underground village had left on the spur of the moment. So apparently this village that he, that he, that he happened upon was, was inhabited at the time. So it seems like it was uh, pretty recent during that time, like mm-hmm. m- maybe one, two weeks or a year. Well, uh, he he had the feeling that they, they might have been there, you know, as he happened upon uh, that little village. And they just, you know, left at the spur uh, of the moment. So, like, they he, they heard him coming and, hmm. Exactly. Because he was coming with his, uh, his lanterns. He had his miner's paraphernalia. And he wasn't alone, and which I'll get to later. But then he came upon a very macabre scene. In one long room, they were laid out at angles to the wall, 27 skeletons, which wouldn't be a big deal for, for most people seeing a skeleton, but the smallest of which was 6 feet 6 inches, and the tallest was more than 10 feet tall. Hmm. Wow. So that's, that's an interesting find, to see skeletons 10 feet uh, tall. Another room, which really must have blown him away, he found uh, an embalmed man and a woman dressed in ornate royal robes, and he believed that they were the king and queen of this race. So here it was. He finds two mummified bodies, you know, uh, dressed as though they were uh, royalty in, uh, in that chamber there. Mm. Brown goes on to say he spent, you know, days exploring and studying the hieroglyphics that he had found. He decided to leave the tunnel and its contents exactly as he had found them, and he'd return at a later date. But first he cleverly concealed the entrance of the tunnel, and he marked it on his map exactly where it was on the mountain. So, answer to your, your question, Tom, he told the group that after the six weeks of uh, meetings that they would leave on June 19th at 1 p.m. to go to Mount Shasta to, uh, to dig out these treasures, and that there were three caves in total, and in two of the other caves, he, for the people that would come with him to help catalog the items, he would then make available what were in those two other caves for them. So these people sold, sold their possessions. They all were on the bandwagon to go up to, uh, to Mount Shasta with them. Eighty people waited that morning uh, on June 19, 1934 for, for uh, J.C. Brown at the designated time. Uh, he didn't show up. People waited all day. They waited all night. Finally, the following day, they called the Stockton police. And they did an investigation, but no, no trace of J.C. Brown could be found. He just completely disappeared. The 80 people who waited in vain for him told the police that they believed in the authenticity of his story, and they believed in the, the existence of the vast tunnel in Mount Shasta that was filled with go- golden artifacts. So now the police asked, well, how much money did he take from any of you? And the only thing that they could come up with is that while he was in the federal shelter, he had borrowed $5 from, from one of the men. And when they asked him why he was in the federal shelter, he said, well, if people had known I was a millionaire, you know, then they would kidnap me, you know, for my money. And I had been kidnapped once before. So here it was. He was telling them, you know, hey, I'm a millionaire. I'm incognito. I'm here at my expense. I'm going to take everybody up to Mount Shasta to uh, to unearth, you know, this this great archaeological find at my expense. And then he mysteriously uh, disappears. So. After reading this, I was, you know, intrigued by what I just read. I said, you know what? I, I wrote down all the clues that I had learned about the legend, and I decided to go to the New York Public Library and spend 
at least a month to do my own investigation and see if I could solve the 73-year-old mystery surrounding the man known only as J.C. Brown. And you found something pretty interesting about J.C. Brown, didn't you? Oh, yeah. Well, the first question that we all have, and I'm going to lay this out as, you know, how my mind worked. I says, okay, I've got seven or eight clues. The first question I had to ask Ramon was, was there a man named J.C. Brown? So I did some digging, and the answer was no. I, w- I wasn't able to find anyone in the United States named J.C. Brown. So there, right there, I says, well, maybe this isn't going to go anywhere. So the next question I asked was, did the Lord Cowdery Mining Company exist? Was there, was there a Lord Cowdery Mining Company? So the funny thing is I went on Google when I'm at the library there, and I Googled it, and lo and behold, there was a Lord Cowdery Mining Company of England. So now I, I got my first break there. So my second question I asked uh, Ramon was, was the company named after the owner himself? Was there a Lord Cowdery? You know? And the answer was yes. So now I had to go and try to figure out, okay, well, there was a Lord Cowdery. Who is this man? You know, is this the same man who shows up in 1934? I don't know. I know uh, they said the man was in his 60s when he showed up. He said he re- retired. But the man said he had worked for the Lord Cowdery, Lord Cowdery Mining Company all of his life and, and waited till after he retired before he came up to Shasta to, uh, to seek the fortune. So the first question was I had to rule out Lord Cowdrey, or, you know, make him definitely the guy who was J.C. Brown. But what I learned was uh, Lord Cowdrey was born Wheatman Dickinson Pearson, and he was born in uh, July of, of uh, July 15th of 1856 in uh, Woodhouse, Yorkshire, England. Now, the interesting thing about Pearson, his family, his family, uh, was uh, started the, the company started out as an engineering company, and uh, so he was an engineer, just like the man in the legend. But he was an oil industrialist, and he was the owner of this piercing conglomerate. And so here it is: I have a man who, uh, very prominent man, he was <clears throat> into globalization. He built the Dover Harbor, docks in Halifax, railroads and harbors all around the world. He even built the Sonar Dam in Sudan. But in 1889, Porfirio Diaz invited him to Mexico to build a railroad from the Atlantic to the Pacific. Now, while they were laying track there, his crew discovered one of the world's largest oil fields, the Porfirio Deliano. And this was interesting because here he is now in 1890 in Mexico, and I says, okay, I don't have him in the United States, but I've, I've got the owner of the company in Mexico in 1890, you know, building a, uh, a transcontinental railroad. And, and the, the, the interesting thing about this was, this was 12 years before the Panama Canal. So the Lord Cowdery Mining Company got the rights to build a railroad that went from the Gulf Coast of Mexico to the Pacific side. The railroad was 210 miles long, and goods were able to go from United States to the Far East to Japan to wherever and back and forth and beat the Americans to the punch before they built the, the, uh, the their their Panama Canal there. So this was a major thing. But how my guy became so rich was that when they were building this uh, railroad that was going 
on both sides of the uh, Gulf and the Pacific, they struck oil. And uh, thereby they end up creating the Mexican Eagle Petroleum Oil, Oil Company, one of the largest firms. But today it's known as Royal Dutch Shell. So the Shell gas stations today go back to Lord Cowdery, the Lord Cowdery Mining Company, because their first big find was out of Mexico in uh, 1919. But here is the clue that got this all, the linchpin that got this all together. In 1917, I find out, Sir Wheatman Pearson became officially known as the first Viscount Cowdrey. So that's how he got his name in 1917. And this was the most important clue that I would need to put all the puzzle pieces into place. Because now I made the connection that Sir Wheatman Pearson was also Lord Cowdrey. Mm. Wow. So he, hmm. So he would keep himself um, incognito. So. Well, well, no, no. That's what I first thought. But now, the the next question was because that was my first question. I was right where you were. But then I go, wait a minute. Now I have to place him in 1934 at the office of the editor of the Stockton Record in 1934. So now what I had to do is get a biography to find out, okay, I know he was born in 1856. What, when did he die? Well, I found out that he died in May of 1927, seven years earlier. So now I had to turn my attention to someone else, and then I, I reread the legend all over, guys. I said, okay, I got to read this all over. I got a headache there. I go, you know what? I'm going to figure this out. But it's not the owner of the company. So when I reread the legend it's, it, it just jumped off the page. I worked my whole life under the employee of the Lord Cowdrey Mining Company. So here it is, a faithful lieutenant that I'm looking for. So now I go to the different library in, in New York and uh, the commercial library there, and I get a biography on the life of Sir Lord Cowdrey. Once I got it, I learned in the book that uh, there were three other men that helped him build his empire. There were photos of, of Lord Cowdery and the three other men. I then, one by one, started looking to the backgrounds of the three other men. It was then that I learned that just as the man had claimed he had spent many years in the employ of the Lord Cowdery Mining Company of England, I was able to use that information I found in that book to link one of the four men, who was J- John Benjamin Body, being the man who appeared in the office of the editor of the Stockton Record newspaper in 1934, claiming to be J.C. Brown. So would have would have uh, Body had enough money to pay for all of this? Did well, he make he, enough money working with um? Well, yes, because what happened was when he was building, uh, as I mentioned earlier, that's why I set it up when he was building the railroad there in Mexico under Porfirio Diaz to, to build uh, the Trans-Ismithson Railroad, when they struck oil, being he was the, the senior guy on that job site, he became very rich, very, very rich. Lord Cowdrey made him a multimillionaire after that oil find in Mexico. So that, so those 20 years, he became a multimillionaire. So by the time he shows up in 1934, he claimed to be already worth $40 million. Lord Cowdrey, his boss, when he died in 1927... He was worth over $300 million and it was, was claimed to be the richest, the sixth richest man in the world in 1927. Wow. So here it is, you know, once I ruled out the owner of the company and I found out it was one of his lieutenants, the next thing was I had to ask myself, well, he, 
he didn't live in the United States. He wasn't born in the United States. He's worked in Mexico all his life. How did he find the time or what brought him to Mount Shasta or the area to search if he was domiciled, working and living in Mexico? And I put, put it up to my higher self. And I said, you know, what do you think? The next day I was guided to, uh, to go back to the library. And uh, I, I decided, well, you know what? Let me look at border crossings through the United States, Mexico or Canada and see if I can find Sir Lord Cowdray or his real name, Sir Wheatman Pearson, and J.B. Body, or anybody else that I found in that biography, in that book, coming in through Mexico or through other ports of entry in the United States around 1904, 1907, you know, similar dates that were claimed in the legend. And then, so, interestingly enough, when I, when I went and I looked at the border crossings, bullseye, I was able to find Sir Wheatman Pearson coming over the border in 1903 with uh, J.B. Body, W.E. Sayers, and Robert Adams. So just as in the legend that J.C. Brown claimed that he had gone up there in 1904 in March, here it is, I have a border crossing, not only with him, but with his boss and two other engineers. Then I look further into border crossings. In uh, 1907, J.B. Body comes back, and now he brings in three other civil engineers with him named C.M. Yeomans, John McLaughlin, Fred Kleisner, and he also brings in a fourth man, John Gilmartin, who was his personal valet. Guys, nobody brings in a personal valet with, with him unless they're a millionaire. So here it is. Yeah, I knew I had, yeah. I had the guy. Now, this is this, <laughs> now I'm sitting there, and I'm looking. I says, I got it. I started looking at more border crossing guys. And now I look at 1910, and this is what was funny. And this, this is when I realized I was really onto something. J.B. Body lies on the manifest and says that he had never been in the United States before. Now, here it is. I'm looking at 1904, 1907. Now I'm looking at 1910, and he's claiming to the U.S. Customs Officer that he's never been in the United States. Now, why would he do that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So have, did you come up with anything that places them in the Shasta area? Well, just what I'm sharing now, because the Mount Shasta Resort closed down in the 30s, and uh, so uh, if, the, if the resort had still been open, I'd be able to probably see some sort of registrar or some sort of sign-in book to place them there. So, no, I didn't have anything as far as that would go, because there's no records of a building that's you know been de- demolished. All right. Here, here's my question. Is there any border entries that you can find from any of those men in 19 what was that 1934 well 1934 is when he shows up in Stockton record and claims that 30 years earlier he had found these things up in Shasta exactly I'm wondering if he left in a hurry because someone was beating him to it maybe one of the other four men well interesting enough the other, the other men, I checked all border crossings for these guys, and yeah. they, never came, they never came back through the border, the engineers that he brought with him, because those guys worked for the Lord Cowdery Mining Company. They were loyal. I mean, C.M. Yeomans was someone who came in from Australia to work uh, specifically in Mexico. John McLaughlin was another, another guy who uh, was from Utah. Fred Kleisner was somebody out of Austria. So the people he brought in there on the second time with him, the engineers, were brought in 
under the, the, uh, the instructions of Lord Cowdrey uh, himself, uh, the owner of the company. So this was something that initially was, was done between the owner and uh, J.B. Body together to orchestrate this, or bring my guys up there and see what you guys come up with. So, I mean, this was, uh, was done through the company uh, initially. Now, what was interesting then, in uh, 1911, Lord Cowdrey again accompanied J.B. Body back over the border of Laredo, Texas border in 1911. So the owner of the company not only comes in first in 1904 with J.B. Body, but he comes in again in 1911 to come back up to Mount Shasta again. So here it is. He's an active part in this in the first uh, seven years, you know, uh, after uh, the discovery of the tunnel. Um, I'd like to find the stuff that they actually took out of there because I'm sure that they couldn't have just not taken anything. You know, well, you know here's, what I mean? well when, when this story was told to these uh, 80 men there for the six, week in, six weeks in John Root's home in 1934, Harry Noyce Pratt, the curator, demanded that uh, J.C. Brown show him something you know, from this find. And uh, so J.C. Brown told uh, the, the, the museum curator that he would show him uh, some contents that he had that was located in a vault in Laredo, Texas. Now, at the time, I did some research on this. There, is, there was uh, the, the Laredo, T Texas National Bank was on San Bernardino Avenue, which wasn't far from the, uh, the border crossing where he crossed over. So he had a bank vault, I believe, in that bank, and that's where he had stashed some of the important papers and the things he found. And because he had come over the border there about 13 times that, 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 that I have a record of, he picked his spots as to what he brought back over the border back into Mexico, I believe. So this all starts to add up when, when he, if he tells this uh, newspaper guy that it's at, it's something at, at a bank in Laredo, mm -hmm. uh, then all everything's starting to fall together here. Yeah, well, he 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 didn't mention Laredo specifically. He mentioned in oh, Texas. But, Texas. But well, still, I was still able. That's... Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Laredo, Texas, uh, that bank was founded maybe like eight, nine years before uh, before he had gone, you know, gone up to, uh, you know, through the border there. So, I mean, that was the bank. There was no 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 I, no doubt in my mind that that's where he had, you know, he, this uh, information, these pictures or, or treasure stash, whatever he had. Mm. See, it, this, it, from what I'm hearing you say, I'm starting to think that um... – I'm getting the feeling like someone beat him to it, and the reason why I'm saying that because I I can't remember who it was or where it was in California, but there's a a guy was on YouTube talking about a legend of some people going and finding a cave full of stuff in the 1930s. So I'm just wondering if any of the four men that were there were probably trying to beat him to it or something. Because well, we're talking about a lot of money and gold, so greed absolutely. comes into into factor. Oh, it's a big, big factor. That's why I, that's why I look closely at the other three men that he was with, and uh, on the first trip, and then the the other three men that he brought in on the second trip to see if I could tie any of them coming back into the country, and and see um, if they were the ones that went out there and made. Because you know, like you said, there's gold fever. He claimed, though, that during those six weeks of meetings that he had been kidnapped once and he barely got away with his life. And uh, he had said that after he told his wife and his in-laws about, you know, what he had found 30 years earlier or in, uh, after that, 
they, they all wanted to go back uh, to Shasta, you know, to dig up what he had found. And uh, mysteriously, they started dying one by one. And he also had a, uh, an accident where, which was very serious, which he didn't elaborate on. But uh, he claimed that he had been followed on, on many occasions and uh, didn't say who they were. But I'm sure that, you know, uh, people didn't want this secret to come out. And uh, they did not want him coming into the country to uh, to change the existing paradigm at that time. Yeah. Um, so you be, so you believe you found you you've done some uh, some uh, searching up there yourself, up right? On yeah, I'm gonna, yourself. I'm going to get to that now. Yeah. So uh, after I discover all this on paper, <clears throat> I uh, I contacted the Stockton Police Department and I informed them that I could solve the dis- disappearance case of uh, J.C. Brown. I was told by the police officer that the case was closed, but that I should contact uh, the newspaper who put out the article on uh, June 19th of uh, of, uh, 1934. And I was uh, put in touch with a columnist by the name of Michael Fitzgerald of the Stockton Record. Uh, I put a call to him and uh, I shared my findings with him. I was able to provide him with accurate information without even having a copy of the original newspaper that was published in the record on June 19, 1934, regarding the disappearance of J.C. Brown. After I gave him this information that there's no way I could have known, he sent me back a, um, uh, a PDF file of the actual stories that were written, and then I was able to get more information. But at that time, what I, I learned after was that he claimed he was worth over $40 million. So that piece of the puzzle I didn't have. I had just about everything else, but... The columnist was, you know, interviewed me immediately because he couldn't believe that, like, I had put together this, you know, uh, and laid it out in a very pretty much easy format for him to follow. And him having the article there, you know, he was pretty much convinced that I, I had to be on the right track. And then after after that, um, did you head over to Shasta or oh, yeah. were you still well, right? Well, right after that, I decided, well, you know what, I'm going to go public. So I ended up going on a coast-to-coast with George Norrie and uh, shared it with George. And then I got uh, some, a lot of people hitting my website. I've got emails. And then I got contacted by a viewer who uh, sent me a CD about Mel's Hole and said it might be some, something to do with my research. So I ended up coming out to uh, the West Coast and started looking for, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the tunnel myself, but what was interesting is in November of 2008, I was sent an email from a man named James, who I later became friends with after he listened to my interview with George, as I mentioned on Coast to Coast, and he emailed me a story, and this is what was the clincher. He emails me a story uh, written by a man who claimed that he had stumbled upon an unusual basalt volcanic rock formation with, that led to an underground civilization lit- uh, under Mount Shasta that he called Telos. Now, I had never heard of the name Telos, but this email was very interesting. The article was written by a man known only as Brad. But this guy, Brad, claimed that he and his daughter were hiking in the ancient volcanic mountains of Dunsmere, California, walking off a heavy Thanksgiving dinner from the day before. Now, this is in November of 2008. So after they're walking off this this dinner, something extraordinary happens. While they were hiking, they were discussing the folklore surrounding the Mount Shasta region and the Lemurian civilization said to be living in a massive cave city within the volcanic mountain. 
As Brad and his daughter rounded a corner, they came across the rugged basalt rock with two doors. They stopped and took photos of these doors, when suddenly a tall figure wearing a long robe greeted them speaking with a British accent. Brad and his daughter asked the man where he come from because he startled the both of them. And the man replied, from inside the mountain, the city of Telos. Now here is a man wearing a robe, a tall figure, you know, just comes out of nowhere. And then the man said that they had found one of the back entrances to Telos. And then he graciously invited both Brad and his daughter in, into the entrance. Now Brad and his daughter, they were curious. But of course, they were both frightened. And they declined uh, the man's offer to go inside of the mountain with them. The figure then, as quickly as he uh, arrived, disappeared. But before leaving, he swore Brad and his daughter both to secrecy, never to reveal the location of the doors to Telos. Brad concluded the story by stating that until this time, he and his daughter considered the Lemurian civilization to be mere folklore. Guys, after reading the story and looking at the photo, I jotted down all the notes and the clues I'd learned from it. And I decided that I was going to look for this rock formation because as I studied the photo closely, I was be I believed that there were no coincidences in life, guys, that when I got this, that these this rock formation with these doors was where J.C. Brown claimed that he that he went into to go underneath this uh, and find the lost treasure under Mount Shasta. So I believe I had a photo and I was going to now come out to California and look for this unusual uh, basalt rock formation. So now, uh, for a year, guys, I, I've gone over the clues. And it was my theory that Lord Cowdrey and J.B. Body stumbled upon this rock formation by accident and while vacationing at the Shasta Springs Resort in Dunsmuir, California. And when I came up with why I believe they went out there, I then researched the history of the Shasta Springs Resort, which is located about three, three and a half miles north of Dunsmuir, California. And picture this. you got two men, very, very wealthy. One's worth about $40 million, The other's worth about $300 million. They decide they're going to go take a break from, from, from their work duties, go into the United States, and they go up to the Shasta Springs Resort and drink the... Uh, the bubbling water there, because the, the resort was famous for uh, the drinking of Shasta water, because it, it, it was reported to have beneficial results, and it was used as a remedial agent. So here it was, they're up there drinking the, the, the carbonated, sparkling mineral water up there. And I believe that while they were up there, that they, they found, walking on the grounds of this property, this unusual rock formation. So armed with this information, I decided that I was going to go you know, to the Dunsmuir area, and uh, I was going to look for uh, this man, Brad, who uh, claimed that he had, him and his daughter had found these doors, and that's what I did. I went up to Dunsmuir, and I was able to start asking questions like a detective would, and I was able to find out Brad's identity, and then had Brad emailed by a friend of mine, and then he confirmed the information about what happened with him and his daughter, but he added to it that the, the doors uh, close off lava tubes that go northeast towards Mount Shasta. And these tunnels bring glacial waters uh, from Mount Shasta to Dunsmere. These same tunnels are also the source for the, the Mossbray Falls uh, in north of Dunsmere. So here it is. These lava tubes 
go for 11 miles, if not more, leading back to Shasta. So now I, I figured, okay, if I'm right, I'm going to find these doors. So I began hiking and exploring the area that surrounded where the Shasta Springs Resort was once located. On the second day of my exploring, I came across that strange-looking basalt volcanic rock that J.C. Brown had claimed he had found many years earlier. From the location of this unusual rock formation, it was approximately 11 miles from the base of Mount Shasta, just as J.C. Brown had claimed in his legend, and I am fairly certain, guys, that it leads to an underground city in the bowels of Mount Shasta. Is so, this is this the, the one in Panther's Rock? No, this this is not on P- Panther Meadow. This is uh, oh, okay. No, what you what what you're referring to in Panther Meadow is there is a uh, an opening there that most people can't see, but if your vibration is high enough, mm-hmm. this rock will open and then people will be taken in. A lot of people talk about being taken in. Uh, uh, Telosians will come out, send in masters that will take certain people in there, but the opening will only appear if, uh, if, if, if the right conditions exist. It could either be through harmonics, it, it could be certain things, elements have to come into play, but there is other openings up on the mountain, that, but they cannot be seen by the naked eye, but there have been a number of people that, that have been known to be taken in uh, and a lot of stories come up from Panther Meadow and up further that I've documented. And I've been up in Panther Meadow, and I know where some of these other places are on the mountain. So, yeah, uh, there is some truth to, to what you just elaborated to. But those openings appear to be more etheric nature, not in the physical 3D. It's more in the fifth, fifth dimension uh, that you're referring to. So I wonder what it would take to get a uh, an, an actual the permits or whatever it would take to do some sort of a, an excavation and, or exploration expedition into the mountain like that. Well, I can tell you uh, last year uh, I was doing a show in Shasta called Legends, Mystery and More at the college at the COS college. And at the time I had just gone public. They had put my article in, in the uh, Mount Shasta news newspaper about my, what my find was. And, Someone had done some digging on the mountain, fairly large hole, looked like they might have had tools to do with. And uh, the, the Forest Service were looking for the people who, who were digging on the mountain because it's on U.S. forestry land. They wanted to arrest the person who had uh, started his own excavation up there. And someone had even gone to the college and was asking uh, if they could have all the copies of my shows because they wanted to see if I had claimed that I had done any digging up on the mount- mountain where uh, this uh, excavation had taken place. So, which was funny because uh, they bought the, the 13 or 15 shows that I did, you know, uh, at the college. And uh, but you know, uh, I'm still here, so obviously I wasn't the one who was responsible for the digging. Uh, you won't be able to get, you know, a permit to dig unless. Uh, you know, the Smithsonian Institute or uh, some people of that nature would, would be going with you or be would be overseeing the dig, I would think. Yeah. Mm. Well, if, if a, a company like that gets uh, tied into it, I don't think anything of any significance would be let out to the public. Oh, of course not. <laughs> It'll end up in the Atlantic or the Pacific or maybe out in, in the, um, the Japanese Sea where uh, Ramon is, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, actually, it's right under my carpet. 
<laughs> no, but uh, <clears throat> because I've looked into this myself. Um, the first time I heard your story, I remember I sent you an email and told you about Panthers Rock. Yeah, Panthers Metal Rock. And it's I, so I was reading up on all these different legends and all these different claims of people and even of people who supposedly live in Shasta that are Lemurian, but they, you know, change themselves up. Well, I've, I've lived in Shasta on and off the last two years, and I haven't met anyone uh, who, uh, who, who I could say, you know, was a Lemurian or somebody there who, uh, you know, uh, I've met people that claim to be channeling this one or that one, but when it came to specifics, you know, you know uh, I, I could say I personally haven't encountered anyone who, uh, other than can channel Adama, the high priest of Telos, I mean, there are many people... In Shasta now, they claim they they they, uh, they channel uh, you know the uh, ascended masters and tell us, but you know what? I take that with a grain of salt because you know you need some physical, tangible evidence or see something so that way you can say, okay, now I get it because uh, I have something that I could take back to show someone. It's hard to show somebody an intangible, you know. Yeah. So, are there any other? Uh, what are the other legends surrounding uh, Mount Shasta? There, I, I know that there are several. Uh, are there any uh, uh, Native American legends? Yes, there are. Uh, I uh, when I uh, first came out to the West Coast in 2008, I uh, met some Native Americans. Uh, I'm gonna I'm not gonna name the tribe, but I, I will I will say they're the Salish. I'll call them Salish. Um, and up in you, your area, and uh, there's many many tribes up there, Tom, that you you very well know of. Shehalis, so. yeah. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, and um, a lot of them have uh, casinos. <laughs> but in any event, uh, I guess that's the reward of, uh, you know. Anyway, but uh, I was told when I first went up there, interesting story is a friend of mine invited me up there, and uh, I was staying with a friend, and her phone rings, and a Native American, and we'll call him named Bobby, I'll call him Bobby, calls my friend up and says, Is your friend here yet? She says, who, Stephen? He says, yes. He says, tell him I, I need to talk with him. Now, he says, I'll be right over. She hangs up the phone and turns to me. She says, I don't know how in the world that Bobby knew you were coming, but he needs to talk with you. So I says, well, who is he? She says, well, he's a native elder from a certain tribe and uh, told me that he was Sundance in Arizona and he was... Uh, you know, uh, a very spiritual man, uh, a shaman, if you will, but he wouldn't claim claim to be a shaman if you asked him, but he'd smile if you, you know, if you if you gave him the title, you know. He goes, well, they say I am, you know. Uh, yeah. So a very modest man. But he comes, and I, and I met him, and um, he says, can we take a walk? So we go take a walk, and he says, I was told you were coming. I looked at him. I'd never seen him before. He had long hair, you know, just like a Native American would, you know, and... Uh, he said, uh, behind you is uh, Archangel Michael, St. Germain, and uh, the high priest of Telos, Dama. I looked at him like, my hair on my neck, uh, you know, raised. He goes, but I was sent here to protect you. I go, protect me? He goes, yeah, because uh, he says, there are a lot of people that don't want, you know, your discoveries to come out. So uh, he said, but I need to share some things with you. So he then went and shared with me... Uh, oral history of his people and he said the 
the native stories is that his people had come out of the mountain and his people were out of Mount Rainier, but he says Rainier, Shasta, and all the, the Cascade mountain ranges uh, is where all the people came out from the hollow earth and they are descendants of these people. And he called them the tall ones. And he said, uh, so I asked him, you know, to describe them. He said, well, his grandparents would tell him about them, uh, them fishing in certain rivers, and uh, they were seven, eight feet tall, if not taller. Uh, they wore buckskin, uh, long hair, and he said that uh, they uh, they were they were known to come out, and then uh, if people went near them, they would dematerialize. He said they all had the power of, uh, to, you know, to change from the three D to the fifty, and you wouldn't see them, so they could just dematerialize uh, right before your eyes, and uh, so. He did say to me, he said that, you know, everything that you, you, you say, because I had explained, you know, what brought me out to California, he says, you're on the right track. He goes, you will find what you're looking for. He says, but uh, he goes, my people have, uh, you know, are going to you know, look out for you and we're going to make sure that, you know, you arrive on time, you arrive safely. So I, I took what he said seriously because how in the world, you know, he knew I was coming, how in the world, you know, why, why would he even share some of these things with me on the oral history of his people? I mean, we talked about Bigfoot, we, we talked about a number of other things, and uh, he, made, he gave me validation even on Bigfoot, which was interesting, because uh, that's something that I, you know, I, I never really looked into. I mean, um, I heard of Bigfoot, I, you know, I don't know that it exists, but uh, he, he made sure that I understood that not only uh, does Bigfoot exist, he gave me an interesting story to tell me that, you know, he's seen one and his, and his friends have one uh, right near the Olympia Forest that comes and would steal salmon out of his smoker. Hmm. So what his friend did was modify the smoker and put the, the plexiglass door higher up so that way when Bigfoot would come, he could reach in only after he could see that the, the salmon was cooked and take it rather than before when it was lower, just take it before it was done. So it was interesting that the fellow, even Native American, even modified the smoker for Bigfoot. <laughs> nice, nice, nice. And, and once I was, and I, I, I'll share something, we go on the limb here. I'm, I'm praying ceremoniously in the, in the sweat lodge while I was up there in the, in your state, in Washington, and uh, in the, uh, the ceremonial sweats, it's like seven rounds that, you know, uh, we were going through, but about third or fourth round is when you get to the nitty-gritty and things start to get to dis discussed, and uh, a lot of things that the white man won't hear, and one of the things they were praying for was for Bigfoot, that uh, he would, you know, be safe and uh, stay out of harm's way and not, you know, uh, not be hurt from, uh, you know, people trying to... Uh, to take him as a prize. So, I mean, uh, you know, with my own ears, you know, I was able to hear this. So it made me realize that, you know what, you know, here I am in ceremony for this to come out. There's got to be some truth to it. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm, I think that, uh, the Bigfoot, uh, legends throughout the world, uh, that kind of lends credence in my book. It, it kind of adds to the evidence of the hollow earth. Uh, uh why else would nothing be found on the surface? So I think they're a subterranean or a inner earth creature, personally. Well, I, I agree 100% with you. Uh, and uh, I'll share a story that uh, I shared with Ramon only after. Uh, I'm going to just tell you guys that uh, James Gilliland, uh, 
wants to say hello to both of you. He says, uh, I should say hello to both of you and uh, say hello to you, you two crazy guys. <laughs> <laughs> that would be us. So, yeah. So I, uh, okay, I will pass it on, but I'll do it in a, uh, in a in a lovingly fashion. But being I mentioned his name, I'm going to share a story. And uh, this happened right after uh, I came up to uh, Olympia, Washington. I went down to his ranch, and his ranch is in Trout Lake, Washington. And I was going to stay at his ranch for three days. Uh, and so this is August now of uh, 2008. And uh, while on his ranch, the first night, about 30 people assembled out in, in the field there. And uh, if people don't know, that his East City Ranch is known uh, to have UFO activity above his ranch, which is uh, in the close proximity uh, to uh, Mount Adams, another uh, large mountain range uh, in, uh, in Washington. So we're, we're out, 30 of us, and we're looking up at the night sky. And we're able to see some UFOs that night. We're out about two hours, it was eight till about 10, and around 10 o'clock, it started to rain very hard. So everybody scattered, and I had a tent, and my girlfriend had a tent, uh, right out in the open field, and uh, we went to bed, and uh, sleeping about four hours, and uh, all of a sudden, <clears throat> I see a figure over my tent. It must have been about eight or nine feet tall. I see the shadow, this ominous presence above my tent, and I had the, the little zipper pocket in the front of the tent. I quickly zipped it open to see what, what was looming outside of my tent. I thought it might be bare or, or what could it be, but it looked human the way it was you know, just posturing over my tent. By the time I opened the zipper, I couldn't see it in the darkness. So I got up my shoes, I got my flashlight, and as I, I came out of the tent, I heard the dogs barking on the property. I heard about 20 people just all yelling, like, you know, commotion, like something had happened. So I w went out investigating from 2 o'clock in the morning, and I stayed up about 5.30. So me and this fellow, we were sitting out in the field there just looking like, what could that have been? And uh, he was saying, it's the tall ones, you know, they were here. And I was like, well, I don't know what it was. I just saw the shadow. So about 5.30, my friend came over to where we were sitting, and then she said that when I, I left the tent, she thought I went out to relieve myself. And when she looked out into the open field, there was a figure there. But after studying it, it was about eight feet tall. And the figure looked back, and she looked out, and she was really, that's not Stephen. And she realized that here it was, this tall, ominous presence staring back at her. And they had this stare, stare down for about 15 minutes, and the whole time she said like she just kept sending it love, saying, you know, you know please don't hurt me, whatever. And uh, she was said she was just like almost like hypnotized by what she was viewing. So when I saw her at five thirty in the morning, she relayed, you know, the story and I says, Well, I saw it. Other people are telling me they know what it was and uh, so when about eight thirty in the morning rolled around, I ran into James on the property. And I said, James, you're not going to believe what happened last night. He goes, yeah, I know. He goes, my sister saw it too. So, <laughs> so I, uh, <laughs> at least I had validation, you know, that, you know, uh, it was something that was just, you know, uh, unbelievable. And uh, I, I don't know how I would have reacted to it had I actually seen it because it was two o'clock and I just opened the zipper 
And, you know, to have something staring at you like that, I mean, you know, I could have had a heart attack. I don't know what would happen, but I just know that, you know, it wasn't of the world that I would, that I'm known to experience at the time. But I did get validation in the morning that, you know, uh, there are, you know, uh, there are Lemurians and they're out there. And I guess, you know, I was going to say, I'll I'll give you a quick story to validate yours. Um, My first night there in 2009, I went for the conference. And from the corner of my eye, I kept seeing this tall being that was taller than everybody else. And I remember I mentioned it to James and he says, oh, yeah, they'll be in the crowd. But you can only see them if you're if with the, your peripherals or if your eyes are, are you know, trained to see auras. And, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there's definitely something really tall up there because you keep seeing somebody who's really tall and then you look and it's just the regular people. And then, you you know, you're looking well, at the sky again. And Well, I was just up in uh, Oregon, um, up in Ashland, uh, probably uh, this summer. And I was talking to someone relating a story like I'm, I am to you guys about J.C. Brown and Lemurians. And this person was clairvoyant, and they looked around outside of the tent where, where, where we were talking. She said there were three Lemurians that were standing out there, curious as to what I was saying, and nodding in agreement like, yeah, I'm right. And I turned around. I didn't see them, but her and another woman who, who were listening, they both had seen them. And they, so they made them themselves appear to them, but not to me. But they wanted to validate that I was on the right track. Nice. Mm. Nice. So since we... So oh, we're yeah. uh, we're we're nearing the top of the uh, our first hour here. We're going to do another hour with Stephen in our archives on the website. Uh, I want to give you a chance, Stephen, to uh, talk about some of the projects that you've got going on and some of the new stuff, and get out your website and uh, et cetera, et cetera. Well, the first thing I want to get out is that uh, because I'm starting my interview process up here for 2011, I th- think it's important that I get out my Sindoni says. Uh, website so it's s-i-n-d-o-n-i says s-a-y-s dot webs dot com so sindoni says dot webs dot com and on this site i've got the ability for you to go on to skype and talk to me directly it's uh 9.99 for 10 minutes you can buy blocks of time and i'll answer any questions anybody wants and i'll do it on skype but they can go to that site and they can pay through PayPal or they can use credit cards because I want to get the word out to as many people as possible. And because of the things that I do, it's, 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 not, not hard, it's pretty hard for me to have a nine to five based on the, the things I talk about. So this is the way I, I want to generate income. And part of the proceeds would go to a nonprofit organization. So that's sindonisays.webs.com. I also have another website. Uh, it's my name, Stephen Sindoni, with a P-H-E-N, sindoni.webs.com, both on webs.com. That also gives you uh, interviews. You can hear, uh, I believe I have interviews with uh, George Norrie. You can hear a coast-to-coast interview. You can buy products and merchandise there. And there's also a YouTube site that you can go to uh, at Sindoni Productions, where I have about 100 movies out that you can watch uh, different movies on different topics a number of topics so it's pretty three places that you can go to but the sindoni says dot webs dot com will be a place that people can go to if they want to schedule time with me to talk about any of the things uh whether it be legends mysteries or, or conspiracies or more i'm, I'm gonna 
allow people to, uh, you know, be able to, to get a hold of me in that way and, and uh, clear up some of these things that have uh, been, uh, I guess, uh, buried for a number of years. So we'll have all those links on the BBS, uh, on our page on BBS, and we'll have them linked in the, uh, on uh, the Stephen page on our website in the archives. Well, yeah, all you awesome. have to do really is uh, click on his photo. And I'll take you right to his website. Oh, what were you saying, Stephen? Well, I, I thank you guys for allowing that to happen because, as I said, I mean, this, this information is, uh, needs to come out, and I think uh, it's time the masses uh, get a wake-up call. So we're going to continue this in in our archive section, and uh, uh, we're going to go into some of the the uh, inner earth stuff and uh, talk about a lot of the stuff going on there, some of the old the legends and and uh, things going on, uh, the evidence for uh, our our hollow earth. So uh, I hope everybody uh, pops on over and joins us on the uh, website to uh, continue this great interview. Yeah, and um, make sure, don't believe anything you hear. Do the research yourself. And if if you research into a lot of the things we talk about on the show, you, you'll be amazed. Um, Tom? Condemnation without investigation is the height of ignorance. So. And I always say, if believe in 50% of what you hear and investigate the other 50% and then discern the truth for yourself. There we go. All right. Good night, everybody. Uh, we'll see you in the archives. Cool.